Well, welcome back once again to Talking With Tech. This is Lucas Stuber joined by Chris Bouguet. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. And Rachel Madel is usually great. How are you, Rachel? I'm usually great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we have a, a pretty great interview today, and um, I'm just going to let you go ahead and introduce it, Chris. Yeah, I had the great fortune to talk to Kathy Howery, who is a uh, researcher and kind of a name in the field of AAC out of uh, Edmonton, Alberta, uh, which is up in Canada, in case you don't know. Um, and what she has been researching for a while now is what she calls the, the life lived of an AAC user, meaning um, all of us have these social scripts that we use, you know, like you know what to do when you go to uh, a restaurant, you know, the waiter comes and says something. We have this how things work for 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 verbal speakers, you know, people who primarily use their voice as their uh, primary form of expression. But what if you're an AAC user? How does that change for you? And then uh, what does that look like across your whole lifespan, you know? So what Kathy's been doing and what the interview you're about to hear is all about is uh, all of her research on what are some of those aspects. She spent a lot of time uh, with people who are end users. I don't know if they ever an end user, always learning, but, you know, people who are proficient users of devices and kind of explored what that, uh, uh, what some of those questions might be. And uh, she's done, done a lot of research on it and she's going to be presenting She's going to talk a little bit about that um, at uh, ATIA, which is coming up here quickly. And then also, again, at Isaac. She's doing a uh, pre-conference. I'm jealous. I want to go to Isaac so badly, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the Australia bit. Um, yeah. that's, that's pretty cool. So when you say, um, I mean, one of the things that I always worry about, I guess, with the social scripting element is the fact that AAC, especially for younger users or entry-level users, can be so prescriptive, right? We're only giving them access to what we sort of think they should have access to. So when, when, when you say that she's working with proficient users, is this a different situation for them? These are people who are composing their own messages. Yes, exactly. What I mean by social scripts is uh, for us, you know, how we, um, meaning us people who are verbal communicators, when, like I said, when we go to a bowling alley, we know what the script is, you know, I say, hey, it's my turn. And I, and we just fall into line of what things are, uh, how things are supposed to work. But when you're an AAC user, maybe they don't work quite the same way. Maybe they do. That's what Kathy's trying to, to, to figure out. For instance, for instance, one of the things that comes up and you'll hear it in the interviews, but I'll just to tease a little bit is the idea that I have my own unique voice, right? But many AAC users share the voice of somebody else. So how is that change when you have when uh, your voice is so tied to your identity what does that do to a person's uh, psyche and how they see themselves when they share a voice with other people now i know there are um, programs and uh, uh, ways of trying to create your own customized voice uh, which i know i hope we get to talk to those people um, somewhere in the future in the podcast but uh Right now, many of the people who are using AAC users share the same voice. And so that's just one of many things that she brings up in the, uh, in the interview. Yes, that's a great point. And um, that's a great point. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, too, because we are going to be talking with, uh, with some of those folks. But, uh, you know, I've, I've had the experience where I used to take out um, these large social groups of young adults that are AAC users. And I remember going into a Safeway once with 
something like eight or 10, um, you know, ASU users who were all young men with Down syndrome. And uh, I kept hearing the same, same voice from multiple directions asking for help or talking to me, these things. And it, at that point, it was an identity issue. It was also a safety issue. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. um, I mean, these are real concerns that we need to address as an industry. Think, um, think of, that's just one aspect. Think of another one might be how many AAC users do you know that spend most of their time with somebody else, meaning they have uh, an attendant or a family member or someone that's there. And so, uh, you know, from all of us being speech therapists, right? Therapy is best when parent, okay, you know, maybe sit over there so I can get yeah. some rapport. Because when you're there, you, you tend to answer all the questions, you know, or you tend to go, no, you know that, sir. Come on, say it, say it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Parents are then, mind readers. Yep, sure. You know, you know that phenomenon. So um, what does that do when you're an AAC user and that person's with you beyond you know, all, all that many more hours of the day, you know, and that's something else that you like to explore. And you bring up a really good point, Chris, in that, you know, children don't talk the same when their parents are around or adults are around. And it's interesting to think about how does that shape what a child says and how they say it, um, you know, and oftentimes kids, especially as they become young adults, they're kind of testing those boundaries and learning how to converse in a more social way with their peers. Um, and it absolutely has to be affected when an adult is constantly around and, and, and in some cases having to assist you in communicating. <laughs> Absolutely. And what if you don't like your mom and dad? I mean, geez. (laughs) (laughs) Which most teenagers don't. (laughs) Right. How do you rebel? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's funny. Well, um, I feel like we're going to have a lot to say about this. Maybe it's best just to go ahead and listen. I think you're going to enjoy it. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and listen to Chris Begay's interview with Kathy Howard. Fantastic. Well, welcome to Talking with Tech. And today we have an interview with Kathy Howery. Am I, am I saying that right, Kathy? That's exactly correct. Yes. Lots of vowels in that last name and you nailed it. Very well done. So Kathy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, first, how do we know each other? How did we meet? Well, I think you didn't know this, but I, I've, well, the first thing I knew about you was um, I used to teach an AT class at the university here in Alberta. I'm from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And I used your um, orange, I'm not going to remember the exact title, but I'll give you a little shout out right now. Here it is. Your assistive technology textbook in that class. So, and then I think we actually might've connected um, when you were doing a UDL online course. I think we talked to each other then. Yes. Um, and then most recently in terms of the world of AAC, um, you came to Edmonton and got lots of people um, interested in messages that I care very deeply about. So um, that was like, yay, go Chris. I totally uh, appreciate you hooking me up with that, with that gig. And you know what I think it is? It's sort of like um, you can't be a prophet in your own land. You know what I mean? Like I, I can say the same things I said there and people won't listen to me because I'm Chris Bouguet where I am. You know what I mean? You're just Chris, the, the, the person that comes to my school. But uh, when you travel and you can hear someone else say it, the same exact thing, you're like, oh yeah, okay, must be, you know? Uh, yeah, but you say it with a little bit more panache. Than, quite a bit more panache than I do. So I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, you, you, you give a little uh, value added fun, Chris. So anyway, it was, that was where we, I think maybe first said, hello, how are you, you know, face to face kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe an ATIA, did we run into each yeah, other? Yeah, 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 lost ATIA too as well. That's correct. Yeah. 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 Now, yeah. Um, my presentations have slowed down a little bit with my job and things, but yours are picking up, right? I mean, uh, you have some sessions coming up at different conferences. Tell me about those. 
Yeah, I do. I've been kind of on the circuit for a little while. So um, I just recently finished my doctorate um, after <laughs> probably too long, but that's okay. I, I it was a it was a great journey. Um, little history. Well, thank you. Yes. Phew. No, I, I started thinking I was going to study UDL and just couldn't wrap my head around how to attack that. And then a few different things happened along the way, which brought me back to the kids of my heart, which are kid, uh, aided communicators. And I, I've been working in this field for <clears throat> 30 four or five years. Right? Yeah, four or five years. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, uh, and then I, I fell into this. Well, I went to a, a system tech or a class on technology, and a philosopher of technology came in and talked, and she kind of blew my mind, thinking, "What people ask questions about technology like that? We don't ask questions about technology like that in the AT world." Um, and so we went for coffee afterwards, and she said, "You need to take this seminar by Max van Manen, a phenomenology seminar." And I'm going, "Okay," because uh, I was talking to her about speech generating devices, and and so I took Max's seminar and for until Christmas, I was sort of going, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> like philosophers and um, anyway, it was, but um, by Christmas he had me hooked and I decided that I was going to go back and actually explore the lived experience of speaking with the device. So I um, uh, started by just reading my first little paper for Max was really about reading uh, first person accounts uh, because with phenomenology, you need to actually not have somebody talk about a time like, you know, that uh, my, I like my AAC device because I was really good at, um, uh, sharing my feelings with it. You actually have to get to concrete moments of, of lived experience. And then you look at that and you start to reflect on what's the real meaning of speaking with a device for that person. And there's a few different ways of looking at that. So, um, as I said, a long way to introduce. I've been on the road with my with some of the themes from uh, that that research. So I uh, last when Isaac was in in Toronto, I uh, gave a paper on the meaning of voice for those that speak with speech generating devices. And then there was a few people in the audience from Australia who heard that. And so actually now to my delight and a little bit of. Mm -hmm. um, I'm doing a pre-conference on on uh, the lived experience of speaking with a speech generating device, and in that pre-con, we're going to go through. Again, this is sort of uh, philosopher talk, and and it's not. It, it's really trying to look at technology through a different lens than technology as, as tool, and what does technology what does by its very existence in the world this technology do to shape people's lives and change their being in the world so you look at lived body which i'm talking about voice like how so the meaning of voice lived uh -huh. space how does speaking with the device change your change the audible reach of your voice and change your lived the space in which you live and talk and engage live time which is ending up to be one of the biggest uh, topics um, because anyone who knows about AAC knows that the time dimension is critical and in all kinds of ways so um, lived relations how does 
the use of this technology bring me in or out of uh, relations with others and then lived things which is kind of the looking at the device itself and how does that um impact ones being in the world by the use of the device. So yeah, so that's what I'm doing at Isaac. And then I've done a few um, other ones I've done uh, at ATA last year, I did one which I called the demanding device, which is not only the idea that there are cognitive and physical sort of the traditional demands that we think about, mm -hmm. but what is the device, just what is the fact that these devices exist in the world then put on to people with uh have significant speech challenges so that was really i that's maybe my favorite piece to kind of unpack that and then at atia this year i'm going to be doing sort of a, a little uh, not exactly a repeat but um looking at meaning of voice again the one that i did at isaac so yeah so i've been and i did one at i did one at uh at ASHA too. Uh, I did at ASHA the demanding device, which was quite fun and was pretty well received. So, so uh, do, do, were these presentations born out of your research? I think you said that, right? Yeah. And so, what are some of like the highlights? Tell me some of the things that uh, you know. If if you came to one of your sessions, what were what would be some of the big takeaways you think people would get? Well, um, I think the the most important. Thing that you're going to try and do with a phenomenological study is to actually put people into that moment so that you can say, oh, for me, I'll say this for me. Um, I knew a lot about, I knew cognitively or intellectually a lot about AAC before I started this, mm -hmm. but I didn't, but I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand what it was like to to do that. And so for me, the takeaways of understanding what we think about the demanding device, understanding the expectations and attitudes that those of us who are speaking and who, and especially you know, my bias was so strongly towards tech and, oh, it's just a tool, but we need to get you the, and that shifted for me tremendously. Um, and so it's kind of, you, you get some understanding and hopefully that understanding can, um, can have a impact on your practice. The whole point of this is to have more pathic or empathetic um, practices um, that's not to say that we throw away what you know the the knowledge and the understandings and the explanations but really it's trying to get at a closer understanding of what it might really be like so that when we as practitioners or or family members um, are engaged with people around technologies and the particularly around the speech generating device um, we might um, have some of our preconceptions challenged we might come to it rather with an it's supposed to, if, if phenomenology is done well and I can't profess to doing it well but I'm trying um, it is supposed to kind of evoke a new sense of wonder about something so and to to really um, be open to what the person's experience brings rather than to try and explain it away or trying to fix. I mean, I was a fixer. I would go into a classroom and even, this was the hardest thing um, uh -huh. when I was doing my research is because I just 
you know, I wasn't going in to try and fix anything. I wasn't going, I just was going in to see and to try and understand. So um, I know that maybe sounds a little bit esoteric, but I, I think it's a piece that we've, we've not really um, dealt with in the field of AAC. Um, and even, you know, there's a, there's a big, many books written about philosophy of technology in general, but we haven't stopped to think about the philosophy of assistive technology in the fact of how does this change the lived experience of people? What other things might we want to be considering about technology? So it's, it's been fascinating for me. And I, and that's kind of the impression that I get from other people is going like, first of all, after I'm done, usually there's just this silence. It's just like, <laughs> And, and then they can process and we talk a little bit and I usually laugh about, yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, so, so I think that's it. You touched on a lot right there that uh, is so uh, personal to me, right? Because of what, about what I do working in the classrooms with students. Do you find that um, a lot of the people that you meet and that you talk with um, have a resistance to changing their mindset or their philosophy? Or do you find that most people are like, um, let me put it a different way. Do you, uh, do you find cognitive dissonance uh, something that really impedes what you are trying to convey in your message? Like people just shut down and be like, no, it can't possibly be a change. And what are some of the shifts you've seen? Well, and so interestingly, um, I think um, first, in a couple of instances, I've gotten people, clinicians, who just want to say, when I tell them how it is, they want to explain, well, but that's because of this, or that's because of that, or that's because this wasn't working right. And I'm going, that's not the point here. That's how it is for this person. That's the, that's, and so we need to pay attention to that and not try and explain away why or not let's let's just let's just sit with this and try and understand and be more open to the person's actual experience um and and but i've also gotten people who so the first time that i gave a talk on this um jeff higginbotham was in the room and lots of people and he actually ended up being uh, my external on my committee which was marvelous and a little bit terrifying but yeah um, and so the first time that that I gave this talk, he sort of set up and he says, "Okay, Kathy, so what? So so what can you do with this phenomenology?" And I gave him kind of the pat answer that I knew that Max would have given, which is, "It's not what you do with phenomenology; it's what phenomenology does with you." And of course, being a neophyte, that was just sort of what you say. But I came to understand that that's really it. So the people who get it kind of come away a little bit changed. So I'll give you an example. One time there was a teacher um, in one of my talks, and I think it was one about mostly about voice and a little bit about time. And because I kind of pull these together in different ways, different times. Anyway, she came up to me afterwards kind of in tears and said, you've given me a burden I didn't know I had. And I thought, Oh, oh there's enough burdens. I don't. And then I thought, no, that's exactly it. I right. need you to understand this. I need you to understand this. So, yeah. <laughs> so, what are some um, practical ways when after people come, they they apply what you've talked about? Well, 
uh, certainly in terms of um, the demanding device, um, one of the things that I think people take away is that we need to not be so driven to the highest, and again, this is something that we all talk about, but you don't, you know, it's not always the, the high tech that's going to bring you into relation with someone, mm-hmm. um, that we really need to consider what communication is and, and how people want to communicate, um, and that maybe some of us, myself guilty, need to just back off and let people communicate in the ways they need to communicate. And so that's been a, you know, that's a consistent takeaway from the demanding device um, talk, which is great. And again, it's not, I think what's interesting, it's not that this isn't out there, but it's not there in a, in a really, um, in a way that evokes an understanding of the real meaning for people. I think that that's one of those things. The other, the other um, thing with um, <laughs> lived voice is how, well, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, my voice is not my own. Um, for me, when I started doing this, um, and this, this came up at the, at ATIA as a question. So I'll, I'll share this. Um, I used to, you know, we, I think we all did um, go and put my voice into kids' devices, or or I would say, oh, let's get a classmate to record their voice in the device, and then you're going, well, how bizarre is that? Right, right. You hear my friend's voice come out, and that's supposed to be my voice, like, you know. But I never considered it would be bizarre. But in one instance, one of my um, participants um, texted me and said. Um, well, I just listened to Carly Fleischman interview Channing Tatum, right? That's his name. Um, I just, he's so pretty to look at that I always forget what his name is. <laughs> um, and she said, and I just closed my eyes and I imagined it was me interviewing because she's using the same voice as me. <laughs> yeah. Right? People share yeah. voice. Too. Yeah. And what is that to, to, to have a voice? You know, you, you can... I can tell that my sister's voice sounds like mine, mm-hmm. but voice is supposed to be as, as personal as fingerprints. And yet, you know, and voice says so much about us. It talks about our age and our, and yet in the world of AAC, you know, it's, it's just so not. And then I did have people ask me whether, you know, voice as personal voice came up very often and, really what came up was people still need to be understood because even the kids that took all the time to pick their very special voice at the end of the day went back to a more generic voice because it was still the one to be understood. So, you know, it's that lived moment where I can have the fanciest voice I want, but if nobody's understood, like after the thing, people are nodding their heads and I know they don't understand one thing I just said, well, I don't have a voice, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, the message is more important. Yeah, it's sort of like that phenomenon of listening to uh, you hit the record button and you record something and you go back and listen to it and you're like, oh, that's what I sound like, right? Um, because it's so unique. Uh, everyone's voice, it's part of your identity. So if it's a shared a voice with somebody else, what does that do to someone's identity? Is that what, that's what you're getting at? Exactly. What does that do? And what, what do we need to consider about that for, for therapists, as, as therapists, teachers, parents, right? And, um, you know, this whole, and I don't think we do digitize voice as much as we used to, right. but um, still, you know, our best, best intentions. And, and now you go, oh, that's weird, right? So, and, you know, the other thing about it, and I'll talk a little bit about lived relations, is how the minute that the kid has 
a technological device, they're seen as smarter. The minute. Uh-huh. And, and that came up, you know, it came up when kids went to see people without their device and they asked them if they needed a diaper. And, you know, it's just because their device, she says, if I had my device there, it would have been different. And she would have never treated me like a baby. Or other times where she was having a conversation and with a friend who also was a device user who didn't have her device. And people came over and said, oh, you know, you're so smart, too bad about your friend. And the friend was absolutely as, as a, you know, smart whatever it's smart is you know but it's it's that it's this how people perceive you yeah the the relationship with the world changes when you are uh an aided speaker versus you know and so what does that say about what we need to be doing and what attitudes we right and um and uh so it's, it's that kind, you know, the, the meaning of the device in these kids' lives are way more than just. <laughs> um, that, so, it, you know, I, I often think of it this way when um, we're selecting what communication system will go in place. And, you know, I'm a big proponent of thinking of it as uh, not necessarily AAC, but AAL. You know, what's the language that we're going to, where are we going with this so that we're, the student will be eventually able to generate language. Um, and the... Uh, so often I think if we don't give them some path to a, uh, to language, uh, what you're really getting at with those devices is, um, uh, they can produce, um, it gives them an opportunity to produce whatever they want to say. It's a gateway to something. Um, I was going to say this, I, I kind of rambled there for a second, but let me say this. The, um, the more high end users that I like people who have won on the back end, they're they're functional and using language with communication devices. I find. Tell me if you if you've noticed as well, because you must have spent lots of time with um, with users, right? <laughs> many many hours. Find that most um, most people who are proficient using a device don't use just that device. Like there's not just one communication system. Like I'm talking with my hands right now, and I'm nodding, and you're nodding, so I know you understand me, right? Um, yeah that these are multiple systems that we use to communicate. And just like you and I, you and I are now, or I'm using my voice and my hands and my, and my body gestures, so do uh, aided communication users. They have their, their uh, I don't even think of it as a primary de- device. I think they have a device and they have an alternative device and they have another uh, system. Do you find that to be true? Absolutely. And absolutely. And in fact, you know, sometimes, and this is another goal, the screen gets in between and all of those other things get, get lost in translation, mm-hmm. right? When you're, when you have a, and so, but most of what, I mean, not most, a lot of what we convey, we convey in all these other ways that there's one young lady who, yeah, she uses her device, but man, her and I can have all kinds of conversations without her ever going to her device. And then there's other times, and again, this gets to the whole time phenomenon and is that the whole, um, you know, it, 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 so here's a, Here's another thing that I, you know, I remember, and I sat for hours and hours and hours and hours and talked for hours and hours and hours. And so I would ask a question to 
uh, a person, you know, do you remember a time that you used your device that was really important for you or something? And then, so they'd be answering and their mom would be there or there, and we'd be having this whole other conversation going on because of the hours, you know, because as human beings, we can't handle silence very well when there's two of us together or mm -hmm. three. And, you know, so, so, um, so she would be answering a question that by the time she answered, I kind of, whoa, you know, and you have to think, well, how, but that happens over and over and over and over and over again, because the screen is between and the, t and the time it takes. So, but if I had just asked her, um, questions now this is take me taking more control over the conversation uh do you remember time though and sort of yes no and she could have been very it would have been i would have gotten something but i wouldn't have gotten i couldn't have gotten her actual lived moment in the way that i did but you're right um we all need multiple ways to communicate and one of my participants you know he taught me some good lessons because he prefers a letter board with with words and you know I keep going oh, well have you tried this have you tried this and like, <sighs> no and uh, he's the most effective communicator I know and 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 we had a conversation together it was a it was built up together um, so yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, you know one of the things that, that I've been thinking about through our conversation and this is just fascinating to me I know we could talk forever on this was the idea that if we don't give uh, people some way then how does that also alter their life experience, right? I mean, you just that, 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 that phrase that you uttered, which um, you give someone a communication device and immediately people see them as smarter when they're, than if they don't have their device. So what does that mean if we don't provide devices, you know, that they're never seen as, uh, uh, as capable? Yeah, exactly. I know. And, um, I, I totally, I totally agree. And, and, and yet the, the flip side of that, I mean, this is why it's just, this, we, we have a really messy, the flip side of that is if we put all of our energy on getting the Holy grail of the device, have we slipped away from the nuanced, um, really important ways of communicating? So, so we have to be really, and, and, and thinking as and you said about the the myriad of ways that we as humans interact and connect and the other piece i'll say you know and when i in the time piece i ended up the um the time piece talking about um really our kids don't talk in in talk time they talk in text time and so one of the things that i think might be a bit of an equalizer uh, well, it is, is, is um, Facebook and Messenger and, you know, texting because we, although it's slipping away now, now my kids seem to think that I should respond to their text right now, um, but we do, we do have more grace in that, in that time period, right? Mm -hmm. um, and when I've wanted to get somebody to understand what it might really be like to speak with a device, I give them only text and we have a little uh skype conversation and so we're talking and you're gonna you're texting in you know so i think that this that we're in a world now that will in a in a text world in uh, have a more equal e equal more accessible um um environment communicative environment but again um i worry that I don't want I don't want to lose the richness of everything that we you know and and there's a really neat talk um, 
one of the pieces that I really started with on the ACREC um, by um, Colin, um, Colin, I can't remember his last name now. Anyway, he's a, a user of ALS and he talks, or he, he isn't, had ALS, he used a device. He's now passed away. Um, but his talk is just brilliant about, you know, um, the different uh, nuances of speaking with a device or through there. I don't even know. Is it with? Is it through? I'm, I still, I, um, <laughs> um, and, um, you know, he, he talks about, you know, just when, just when I thought we had a level playing field with texting and email, bam, technology like this comes out, right? And we're, we're, we're um, what's the word I'm looking for? In, at making voice more powerful again. So, um, yeah, so because that we're human beings and, and you know, so yeah. and technology changes and you use what you have. Everyone uses what, what they have. And so, uh, yes. Uh, so if people wanted to come to your, how did people find out more about you and find more about the, the sessions and more about the concepts that you're talking about? Okay. Well, hopefully there, I do have a chapter in a book that talks about some of this. I should, I feel like a advertiser now myself. It's Eddie Burns. Um, I don't know that very many people have it, but it's Dave Eddie Burns, um, efficacy, efficacy of assistive technology interventions. And um, it's, uh, what is the, what it, it's called, uh, the chapter, um, speech generating devices in the lives of young people with severe speech impairments. What does a non-speaking child say? So if they wanted to get that book, and I think it's an online book, they can do that. Awesome. Um, I've got a, a paper coming out um, hopefully in a journal called Phenomenology in Practice pretty soon. Got a couple other things in the hopper that aren't close enough yet for me to be talking about them. If people want to come, if you happen to be at ATIA in January, I am uh, uh, doing the presentation on meaning of voice, and I don't remember what day it's on. Um, February 2nd, maybe? 3rd? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Kathy Howard, look me up. I'd be, I'd be delighted to see you. And then for those of you who want to take the big step and come over to Australia in July, I'm doing a full-day pre-conference um, where we're going to be talking about this, and I'm going to be going through each of those. Um, they call them in phenomenology existentials, so lived body, lived space, lived time on live relations and what things and give you some some snippets uh, and some anecdotes talk about them and then we're going to discuss them a little bit which i'm just so looking forward to i think it'll be really fun so. oh me too i'm so so uh i wish i could go i wish i could have a plane and go back to australia and be there with you because it sounds like it's gonna be an amazing day Thank you. Well, I hope so. And I'm, I'm very, very pleased and, and humbled that they asked me to do that and uh, very excited. So yeah, and I'm really pleased that you asked me to have a conversation with you today. This has been fun. So. Oh, anytime, anytime we get to chat. I know we, we've had conversations before and they're always, uh, they're always awesome like this, you know? <laughs> All right, Kathy, well, thank you so much and uh, uh, good luck in your presentations. I know I'll be following up with you online with uh, and, and, and keeping tabs. So I'll talk no. to you soon. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Well, welcome back. I think that was a really interesting interview, right? There's a lot of concerns there beyond just language. 
uh, that's what I, that was my big takeaway is that so often as a speech language pathologist, I'm worried about getting, teaching the student language. What's their next words? Like, how am I having combined words or how do I teach them the word of the week, you know, with, and, and sometimes I lose focus of, um, well, what, what, what's going on in their life, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, especially for with, with uh, teenage and, and adult users. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right we have to take a step back and look at the why. Why are we even doing this? I think that we get so caught up in the details and the words and what progression and all these skills. And it just, we have to connect with the, the, the why as to, you know, what we're doing and what we're doing is helping individuals communicate, whatever that looks like. Um, the other thing I thought of actually was now we have all of these um, adults with autism who are now able to communicate and writing books about their experience and specifically with ABA and how they hated ABA sometimes. Um, And it's just so interesting. So I think that as a practitioner who works primarily with children, um, I'm, I'm very interested in hearing these adult experiences because we have to, in a lot of ways, we're the gatekeepers of what these children are able to communicate to us because um, we're teaching. And so when we're teaching, we just need to be mindful of that, um, of these things. Rachel, one of the things that was really eye-opening for me that helped me, which we were talking about ABA and other uh, therapists, was um, I got was Twitter. A great resource for people is the hashtag actually autistic. And what you were saying is there's adults who have uh, come out the back end that have autism, and they're now sharing those experiences. And that's one vehicle that people could immediately hop on and look at the actually autistic hashtag. And yeah. then you could see all the stories that people are sharing about, like, this is what it was like for me, you know? Mm-hmm. And it really changed my mind and made me really open up like yeah there's a whole movement of uh, nothing about me without me you know yeah we're not talking about people with autism unless they're involved in the conversation you know yeah actually so carly fleischman who is a aac user who has her own show she was just on the stephen colbert show she actually has a youtube video about her experience in a cafe. Um, and it's really interesting. I would recommend everybody go watch it. Um, but it's interesting because we, you know, we walk into a coffee shop and it doesn't, you know, it might be noisy or, you know, it might be visually distracting, but the experience of someone who has autism is so drastically different from the sensory perspective. Um, so I just think it, any ways that we can kind of think through the lens of what our clients might be experiencing, especially when it's so, you know, different to our own experience. I think that's something that's really helpful because you're able to think, you know, more big picture. It's not just like, oh, they're not doing this. It's like, okay, well, what other things might be at play that might not be affecting me and my sensory system, but might be affecting them? Yeah. Well, that's all. It all goes back to that lived experience thing, right? Um, you know, that, and, and we're not just talking about folks with autism. I think we're talking about everybody, right? Like everybody yeah. has a different communication profile and a different sensory profile and these things. Um, without getting too nerdy, there's this concept in linguistics called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, um, which is, which is the argument that, um, that our whole lived experience or our perception of the world is framed by the language that we have to express ourselves about it. Um, if that makes any sense. And then one of the examples is old Northwest native American languages that maybe don't even have words for the cardinal compass directions. Instead, there'll be something like, you know, ocean word or mountain word or these things. And, and how, you know, neurologically, like, what does that mean? Like, I, I, is that a completely different than visual spatial structure as a result of the language or, you know, the chicken or the egg, basically like what, you know, what came first. 
But I wonder that a lot actually with AAC, you know, like are we, is, is a restriction in, in language availability, does that constitute also a cognitive restriction of sorts? Hmm. I'd like to assume not, you know, yeah. I, I mean, you got to make the assumption that it's not impacting that, 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 that language and cognition, you can work on those separately, you know, because what, what's the other assumption, you make the assumption that they are impacted. And so if a student has language issues, then right. oh, they must they must have cognitive impairments as well. And we wouldn't want to do that to anybody, right? Right. Um, well, and what I mean, too, is like, is not so much are, are they not not so much like is their language um, impacted because of a cognitive impairment, but is by having a restricted set of words that they have access to, is that is, is that then restricting cognitive development? I guess. Mm. Uh, hmm. Well, you, you and I don't have an answer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah well, sure. just <laughs> brainstorming. You'd think that it would be right. I mean, if we're thinking about spatial concepts, for example, and you know, under. If they don't have access to using that word and having a variety of opportunities to experience it through the use of it, it might, you know, affect their ability to comprehend the concept. So I feel like just... Well, and, 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 you know, I think we don't know, but I think you bring up a really good example. And, And I guess my point with even sort of raising the question is just to say that it's that much more important, right, to think yeah. about more than just the language and to think about the lived experience piece and, and these other things. And I'm just, I'm, for one, I'm so glad this research is happening, you know, mm-hmm. you know, partially because we finally have a chronological period of AAC use long enough to do that research, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and more people working on it than ever before, you know, uh, there's, I, I think it's not, AAC is there's not enough research, of course, right? I think any, there's, there wouldn't be anyone that says, oh, yeah, we have plenty of buckets of research on AAC. <laughs> but there's more people that are interested in it and more people that are having conversations like this than there have ever, ever been in the past. And so that's really intriguing to me that we're going to have even more research coming out about how these things work. Yeah. Well, so what, I mean, even thinking from the perspective, like, all right, I'm a school clinician in elementary school. What are some practical things that I can start doing to, uh, to help the situation? First of all, the awareness piece is huge. So just thinking about beyond the scope of communication and language, um, I think that these these other things are at play, you know, like the voice, for example, is such a great idea um, to think about. And I don't know that there's a ton that we can do specifically to address the voice issue, um, but I feel like they're just that awareness. We can start reframing how we practice. And I think that that's a big one. Rachel, I think, tell me what you think about this, but I think a big part of the speech language pathologist job is then to work with the communication partners that are also with that student, right? Mm -hmm. Or that person. So uh, we might be aware, but maybe then the next step is, all right, mom, it's time for you to back off. You know what I mean? Uh, Or or a a paraprofessional, I need you to understand that this person has uh, all this other stuff in their life besides just uh, the, the language aspect. And so mm-hmm. it's coaching people through it, I think. And I also think, too, we, we tend to treat communication in such a formal way, but kids especially are motivated by the informal communication, by the, you know, that's cool or weird or gross, all these things that we can teach kids how to say that are empowering, but also they're just socially more acceptable for a 10 year old to be saying. Um, So I think that that's an important thing too, is let's not forget about those fun social phrases that kids are motivated by. And not only the users are motivated to use, but the peer listeners are motivated to hear. If they 
hear a kid saying, you know, that's dumb or whatever social phrase it might be, they're going to be more, there's going to be more peer acceptance in that social group and that social circle. Absolutely. But I'm I'm sorry, Rachel, we can't teach it because it's fringe. (laughs) (laughs) Womp womp. So one thing that we talk about, right, as speech language pathologists is is what we call MLU, right? So which is mean length of utterance. So, uh, for example, an MLU of two would be a two word um, sentence like I want or ball want or something. And this is often where we see kids kind of stuck, right? I mean, at the elementary level. And so one of the goals that the student had was to get to an MLU of three, which would be like, I want ball or I want break or whatever. And these are terrible examples. They're all super functional, just requesting. But we want something different than that. But um, in any event, I was working with this student and um, I I think he was a little tired of me. I've been working with him for a long time and really trying to work on this commenting piece. And finally, he said, ugly Luke butt. Uh, my name is and, um, and at the time I remember thinking, yes, like MLU is free. I'll take it. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, so you said that something like that, I, I don't know if socially acceptable is necessarily what that was more, but it was certainly more socially appropriate. Right. I mean, that was what an eight year old who's frustrated with their poopy teacher is going to say, maybe, you know, mm, and that's um, so great. Yeah, it was. I was very proud of that moment. He was using uh, WAMP at full. I mean, so he had you know a wide variety of words at his disposal, and he was really creative with them. You know, um, but to me, that highlights again like the part of that lived experience can be like I guess what we would call the robusticity of the device, right? Like making sure that they making sure that he has access to the ability to say things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then also too, what I teach kids that I work with is how to, in a socially accepted way, talk about that. So I actually have a story. I was working with a kid and, you know, I don't exactly even know the details of the story, but he was on a playground and he like was going to pretend or he was actually trying to pee on, you know, one of the playground things. And his mom was like, no, you can't do that. And he thought it was hilarious. So much so that he, you know, he, he was telling me on his device, like, PP horse, PP horse. So I'm like, okay, like, let's run with this because he wants to tell me about it and he's laughing. And whenever a kid's laughing, like you need to run with that no matter what it is. So I'm like, okay, you want to tell me I peed horse. So I expanded the MLU to three instead of two. And, you know, he, this went on for weeks. Every time I would come, he went, he would laugh he'd say, and he'd build the sentence. I peed horse. And I'm like, you peed on the horse. And so it was just like, he loved it though. And then what we started doing was I'm like, okay, like we can't just say I peed horse like randomly. So then I added a quick fire phrase that was like, I want to tell you something funny. So then he would, you know, do the quick fire phrase. I want to tell you something funny. I peed on a horse. So then it was like, okay, great. Now we're teaching the social context with, we're not just randomly saying I peed on a horse because that's not socially accepted. But if you're going to preface with, I'm going to tell you a joke, then it is. So I think that's just an example of, you know, finding something that kids are motivated by, even if it's really bizarre and weird and just running with it. (laughs) In both of those stories that you just shared, what happened is you also, you made a connection with the student uh, as on a personal level. It just wasn't about just the language. It was about, Hey, we're enjoying each other. You know, life is awesome right now. (laughs) Yes. We're being funny. Humor is one of the things that I think is so neglected in what we do. And it's literally the most motivating that we could even potentially imagine. So that's why I always, if there's a giggle or a laugh, I just like, it's like a thread and I just like keep pulling at it because that's where you're going to get intrinsic motivation. And that's what I really want to do for kids is to teach them how to say what they want to say. 
Well, and Chris, I think you hit on another big one too. That's a, a takeaway maybe from this whole thing is to just bear in mind the humanity, right. Of everyone that you're working with. And, mm-hmm. um, they, 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 kids are kids regardless of their communication modality. Uh, yeah. Treat them, treat them like, treat them like people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. Well, we'd love to hear um, what you think. So please do feel free to, to drop us an email at tech at speechscience.org or go to tech.speechscience.org. Uh, and you'll find all the, the show notes from this show, for example, there, as well as links um, and an ability to contact us. Uh, and also feel free to join our Facebook group. We have a, a cool group now, right? called Talking with Tech. Probably something like 800 people in there. And, and it's definitely talkative. People are talking about tech. So come, come join us. Once again, this is Lucas Huber, joined by Chris Begay and Rachel Madel. Hope to speak to you next week.